So welcome to this first American Society of Nephrology podcast from beautiful downtown Denver in Colorado, where if you have the chance of going outside, you can see snow on the mountains, a spectacular view. I'm sitting here today with two uh, attendees at our 43rd meeting, Dr. Kathy Tuttle from the University of Washington in Spokane and Dr. Carrie Cavanaugh from Vanderbilt University in Tennessee. So welcome to both of you. Thank you, Dr. Fong, for having us. Thank you. It's fun to be here. <laughs> this morning, we were privileged to hear uh, wonderful talks in the opening session. This particular American Society of Nephrology meeting was opened by the first woman president of the American Society of Nephrology. Now, for those of us who have been part of the society for some time, it's been a long 43 years before Sharon Anderson uh, became president and now provided the presidential address. As prominent women in nephrology, how does that make you feel? Well, I, I would say it's time, and um, I'm very inspired and and happy to see Dr. Anderson as the first president for the American Society of Nephrology. She's been a longtime member, has contributed uh, wonderful science to our field, has been a leading educator and clinician, and I can think of really no finer woman to be the first president of American Society of Nephrology. And likewise, I feel um, uh, equally inspired uh, seeing someone like Dr. Anderson at the, at the podium. I don't know her personally, but uh, just from uh, learning about her work and also her leadership, there is a growing number of women training in nephrology professionally overall. I believe there was actually a, a review of fellows uh, that had recently completed their fellowship, and there was nearly 50% uh, women trainees graduating and entering the field of nephrology. And so it's nice to see representation amongst uh, the most esteemed leadership organizations that create who we are. You know we're worried that the, there are manpower issues with respect to bringing people into nephrology. It seems that with Sharon Anderson's leadership now, perhaps, and those women such as yourselves, that more women are coming into nephrology. Is that going to help actually improve the manpower issue in general? Well, there are more women in medicine, and it's good to see that that's translating into our field. But I think we need to be very supportive of people at the earliest stages of their career, early year medical students, all the way through residents in internal medicine, to let them know how exciting, interesting, and important our field is. And people tend to go into specialties where they are inspired, where there's been a mentor who's made them excited about a field, made them feel that they could uh, make a difference. And I think the onus is on all of us to reach out and mentor people and encourage them that our field is a good one to choose. So those of us who are here, of course, absolutely believe every word you've just said in our souls. The important part is to be able to figure out how to translate that to our students, our medical students and residents. This morning also there was a fascinating discussion from outside of the nephrology space, a discussion by Michael Walsh from the University of Iowa, who has done astonishing translational work, taking a pig model of cystic fibrosis and showing how the genetic defect in CFTR 
actually causes cystic fibrosis in pigs. What do you think about the idea of having a plenary session where the whole discussion is really separable from the typical nephrology space? I actually really enjoy it because it's an opportunity to learn something about science in another area that can inform our field, plus generally become more informed about medicine and what's happening. And that's one of the reasons I love this meeting is there's plenty to learn about nephrology and things that are within our traditional domains, but I love the diversity of hearing about great science from other areas and take so much away from it. It really probes you to think deeper, and I think that's one of the main reasons that many of us come here, is that we're looking for stimulating discussion, we're looking for dialogue, we're looking for more questions, maybe a few answers here and there, but really something that gets us thinking more about the real essence of what is kidney disease, how do we care for patients with kidney disease, how can we all do better, and, um, and listening to people from other fields um, pushes us further. And there can be so many lessons learned besides just the science, too. And I think you alluded to this, but how do you approach the problem? Because when we all talk to each other and tend to think the same way, the outcomes are the same. And so bringing in people who have different approaches offers us an opportunity for improvements in ways that we wouldn't have come up with if we just talked to the same people all the time. Mm -hmm. What I also thought was interesting from that discussion was there are so many mouse models of, of disease and so many examples where a particular gene has been knocked out only to find that in the mouse no, there was no consequence of that knockout. Interestingly, even though there's no murine uh, disease in the CFTR knockout, when a different animal model mm -hmm. was used, all of a sudden now you get a model in the pig that looks astonishingly similar to that found in the human. Mm -hmm. uh, another lesson learned, I think, from, from Michael Walsh's beautiful Absolutely. discussion, uh, humorously presented with uh, pig questions along the way for those of us who know very little about the porcine community. <laughs> what other sessions did you go to today, Carrie, that were of interest to you? The primary interesting session this morning that I attended was the active debate about two hot issues in kidney patients. Um, and the first debate was about vitamin D therapy in patients with either chronic kidney disease or end-stage renal disease. And the question about whether nutritional vitamin D or 25-hydroxyvitamin D is better either on its own or in combination with uh, compared to active vitamin D or 125-dihydroxyvitamin D therapies. And the entire room was a packed house. This was obviously a, an issue that was important to many uh, attendees at this conference. And it started off by actually asking people about their own practice patterns, about when they identify uh, metabolic disturbances in their patients, primarily hyperparathyroidism, what their approach is. And interestingly, uh, the majority of participants utilize active vitamin D therapies, as that has really been the traditional approach and promoted in most of our guidelines at, up to this time as we're learning more about these. And Dr. Thadhani presented then the a very eloquent discussion about nutritional vitamin D. 
starting all the way at, at uh, really fundamental basic science descriptions all the way through therapeutic clinical trial evidence that's available to date, as well as some introductory comments about prospective trials that are ongoing. And this was then followed by Dr. Melamed, who uh, talked about active vitamin D. And humorously, she started off her commentary by stating that Dr. Thadhani had her convinced. So now it was her work to try and convince <laughs> the audience about active vitamin D. And she then went on and described, uh, again, also equally eloquently about the evidence in uh, numerous, both observational but also small clinical trials that are available about active vitamin D therapy and its effects on proteinuria as well as mortality and bone mineral disorders in general, followed by a rebuttal and a dialogue between the two. And I think the bottom line is they conceded that more evidence is needed, that maybe both therapies have a role, and that uh, more work needs to be done. And hopefully it'll help us answer and, and guide the uh, treatment for our patients down the road. Did and anybody change their practice pattern after a, that debate? Excellent question, because then they uh, queried the audience again and uh, nearly 70% said they were not going to change their practice pattern based on the information presented today. So a lot more work needs to be done one way or the other. Maybe more questions than answers, but uh, spirit in information regardless. Now, Dr. Tuttle, you went to another vitamin discussion, not a vitamin D discussion, but a B vitamin discussion. Do you want to tell us about niacin? Well, yes. In fact, these were posters uh, that were presented today on the role of niacin as a phosphorus-lowering agent. And recognition that higher levels of serum phosphorus are predictive of cardiovascular events and vascular calcification, even in people without advanced chronic kidney disease, early-stage CKD or normal kidney function. And niacin is a very attractive agent, one, because it's been around for over 40 years, and we have a pretty good idea about safety. It's cheap, and uh, lowers the phosphorus about 0.3 to 0.5 milligram per deciliter, which is what we would want in these populations who have relatively normal phosphorus levels, but within the high normal range where we don't want an extreme lowering of phosphorus. And uh, Dr. Andy Bostom has a poster on patients with metabolic syndrome, and tomorrow we'll actually present an oral presentation in diabetic patients where secondary analyses of trials using niacin have shown the robust phosphorus lowering in the range of 0.3 to 0.5 milligram per deciliter. And I think this is a very intriguing approach to potentially intervening on phosphorus and looking at whether it will really improve the bottom line is whether it improves clinical endpoints in patients uh, not only with CKD but maybe even in the general population. Both of these discussions raise the question of perhaps using drugs that are less expensive than those that we're currently using. Interestingly enough, Barry Straub, who is the chief medical officer of CMS, provided really interesting information and an update of where CMS may be going with respect to accountable care organizations. A huge potential change in how healthcare is distributed in the relatively near future. We're talking about January of 2012, mm. if mm -hmm. the current track continues. That would require all of us to do very different things with respect to the care of our patients, to try to decrease cost, to try to be accountable for all of their care, and how, of course, accountable care organizations will fit into bundling of 
a number of factors, including oral medications in the more distant future, all will be issues that we'll have to face uh, with respect to the efficacy of these agents and, and then their overall cost. Well, and I think safety is another important issue in terms of, if you will, being accountable. And the nice thing about some of these agents is because we have a pretty good idea of what the side effects and toxicities are and how to administer them and monitor them, which is not so for, for novel therapies, which are, are important in their own right. But these, I think the first concern always has to be safety. And these are drugs where I think that's another big issue is that we have a pretty good understanding of the safety. You also went to a discussion about phosphate. Mm -hmm. The other um, poster that was related to, um, to this issue was actually in dialysis patients who had inadequately controlled phosphate, adding niacin to traditional phosphate binders. In dialysis patients, it is actually a more robust phosphorus-lowering agent, lowered at about 1.5 milligram per deciliter and raised HDL 20%. So. Um, this is another potential role for some of these agents that have been around a long time and that have sort of been forgotten because there's been no advocate, if you will, especially with a commercial interest. But we, there was a great discussion this morning also on dietary influences on blood pressure. And that's, an, I think, a, another uh, really important aspect that we, we tend to not emphasize as much as drug therapies. Um, and there was a wonderful review this morning about the importance of sodium and potassium and uh, the rationale and the mechanisms, weight loss, alcohol intake, and um, vegetable proteins actually tend to lower blood pressure and spare the kidney because there has been concern about the DASH-type diet because of higher protein and higher potassium and phosphorus in more advanced stages of CKD, and those are important issues. But one of the things that, that was nicely presented is that the vegetable proteins actually appear to be kidney sparing and the vegetable proteins particularly are the ones that lower blood pressure. So again, another, if you will, non-commercial approach to treating hypertension, which certainly this audience is well aware of how important that is, but it, it doesn't have to be terribly expensive, may improve many other aspects of health, and is something that, that we already know a lot about and is currently available to us. This is also one of the anniversaries of the National Institute of Health. And the National Institute of Health, NIDDK, had a special session on funded research in the space of glomerular disease. All of the recent work pertaining to genetic abnormalities in uh, the glomerulus, and in particular the podocyte, were on display from Martin Pollack and Jeff Kopp with a beautiful introduction of the whole glomerular architecture by Marilyn Farquhar, mm. really allowing us to understand how far we've come in understanding the basic structure of the glomerulus and then those genetic defects that may in fact cause focal segmental sclerosis, and especially in the black population. Really uh, an astonishing amount of information uh, that has been garnered over the last very few relative number of years that have opened our eyes to why African Americans may have a higher propensity to have end-stage kidney disease than uh, Caucasians. In that same session, David Salant mm -hmm. described his 
first real good understanding of what the antigen is for membranous nephropathy, mm -hmm. the phospholipase A2 receptor, which really looks like it may be the, ta the target antigen for membranous nephropathy. So for those of us who love glomerular disease, these uh, advances have really opened our eyes in a number of areas. And really, it was a wonderful partnership between the American Society of Nephrology and NIDDK to put this particular session in the mix. So Carrie, you went to another debate, uh, this time on the use of erythrocyte-stimulating agents. Can you tell us about that, please? Uh, absolutely. We all know that as practicing clinicians uh, caring for patients with kidney disease, trying to figure out what to do about anemia therapy in CKD and ESRD and its combination with iron management still remains a bit of a question mark. And we're more concerned about safety mm -hmm. um, in particular, as we well know. Mm -hmm. And um, that applies not to the ESAs alone, but again also to iron, uh, IV iron therapy. And so this dialogue was about administering IV iron robustly and regularly was the first discussant, which was Jay Wish. Uh, he presented a variety of different data, including the DRIVE study, illustrating that it appears that administration of IV iron may permit giving less ESA therapies, particularly in advanced kidney disease overall, and so that may improve costs as well as uh, improve safety measures. However, most of the studies were otherwise uh, small, and this was rapidly pointed out by the second discussant, who was Dr. Vizari uh, from Irvine, University of California, Irvine. Uh, he had an extensive dialogue about the mechanistic background for potential uh, safety and adverse consequences of both ESA therapy and IV iron therapy, and um, I think left us all scratching our heads about whether or not indeed it is safe to administer these therapies. How would you specifically translate the vitamin D debate mm. that you heard to yeah. your patients uh, next week? Yeah. I think that when we approach patients, the first, in, in my particular view, um, in my, my personal view, is to be honest with them that we don't have all the information, but that we're going to make our best recommendation based on the evidence that's available. And at this point, for example, in the vitamin D, we're talking about utilization of nutritional vitamin D therapies that Dr. Thedhani presented. Again, good evidence that the safety profile is good. There's good evidence for low, minimal risks, and that by uh, receiving therapy, uh, you may improve bone status, you might improve risk of infection rate. And I probably uh, quantify for patients in clear language terminology. So rather than deliver them um, specifics about the relative risk being 1.48, we would say that the risk is small to moderate compared to patients who may not elect to receive that therapy who are like them, who have deficiency of the same degree that they have. Imagine yourselves when you first came as a brand new trainee to the American Society of Nephrology. Huge meeting, hustle, bustle. You couldn't figure out for all intensive purposes what, where the convention center was. You walked in and there are lights and sounds and a huge, beautiful place here in Denver. Help me understand what your first ASN meetings were like and then help us understand the advice you would give to a new trainee 
who's never been here before how best to navigate the system. I'm substantially older and went to the first meetings. My first meetings were all in Washington, D.C., when the meetings were held in the Sheraton and the Shoreham. A wonderful period of time, quite frankly, because you got to see almost everybody, and the meeting was confined. Here we are in an auditorium space, the Wells Fargo Auditorium, which is mammoth. What was your first ASN experience like here? My first ASN experience was in Toronto, and it was, like you said, a very large venue that was separated between two conference centers. So for a first-time trainee who was not even yet a nephrology fellow but an internal medicine resident, I was truly taken aback by the amount of information and the diversity of information that was delivered at that meeting. And I must say, I'm still taken aback to this day about the scope that's covered in these meetings. I think okay. at that time, you feel like you want to take it all in. And there is, feels to be a pressure to kind of see it all. Although you do gravitate, I think, at that stage to the, uh, the clinical, the clinical-focused sessions. And so that the ASN gives you a track and identifies for you uh, the content tracks was very helpful for me as a trainee because I think that's what I used as my guide at that time. So, Kathy, what was your first ASN? Well, I'm of a generation that I went to the Sheraton and Shoreham, too, about 25 years ago for my first meeting. And I'll talk about what happened at that meeting and then how we progressed. I remember being very intimidated, especially because I was presenting at the first ASN meeting in an oral session, and I thought I was going to be eaten alive. And I was so scared. But then I realized that actually people were there to support us, to help us to learn. And the people who challenged me with questions weren't really trying to tear me apart. They were actually trying to help me. By showing me my flaws, it gave me an opportunity for improvement. It took me a while to come around to that. The other thing is I remember trying to see so much that I became overwhelmed and I'm not sure I really processed everything. I think today the meeting has really grown and improved, not only the science but the technology. And what the advice I would give to somebody attending their first meeting is pace yourself. Set your priorities, go to the things you really want to hear, but take some breaks so that you can actually assimilate and process it. And with the technology that we have, Many of the great talks are going to be on the web. Uh, listen to the podcasts, hear highlights of things you didn't attend. So there are lots of opportunities now to go back and hear things that you might have missed. So take your time, find areas of interest, and don't be afraid to ask questions. I used to be afraid to ask questions, too. I always thought it, that what I had to say was stupid or something. But now, you know, as I've gotten older, it really is true there aren't stupid questions. If you're sincere and you've listened, somebody else is wondering the same thing. And the, the experts actually like your questions. It challenges them, it stimulates them, and it gives them a chance to expound even further on the things that they love. And if you show an interest by asking a question, you, you normally get a very engaged, considerate answer. So step up, speak clearly, ask questions, don't be afraid, and assume that people want to help you. We, you talked about the manpower issue earlier. I think for those of us who are a little more senior, all the more reason to be good mentors, to answer questions, so show interest when people ask you questions, try to have a smile on your face and a spring in your step, and encourage people. 
What's fun this year is that there are 300 hours, 300 hours that are going to be available online, video, and the, uh, the slides. A whole, some of it's the in-depth courses, some of it's actually the uh, plenary uh, talks are all going to be available uh, next month. This is the first time the ASN has provided all of this information so that when you get home, you can go and see talks that otherwise you would have missed and can repeat talks that you liked or, or uh, hear new ideas again. The group of people that sometimes get forgotten, and to me the place that most exchange occurs, are actually at the poster sessions. There are so many people you know, standing in front of their posters who want to describe everything that they have done. And to me, some of the best uh, learning opportunities are talking to the investigator, having them walk through their poster. And I would encourage everybody to, to spend time in front of those posters with the exhibitors and make sure that you hear what they have to say and, and challenge them. And to me, it's a enormous learning experience. Same time, it's interesting, going through the exhibit hall, the sights and sounds there are always uh, <laughs> enormous. The exhibit hall is full of distributors of all kinds of material of products and things that are very much part of our day-to-day -day activities. For all of you who are listening to this, this podcast will be available on the ASN website. And also, for those of you who are younger than I am, please friend us on Facebook. Dr. Tuttle and Dr. Kavanaugh, thank you so much for spending the, this time with us here. This is Ron Falk for the American Society of Nephrology. Thanks so much.